0: Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students. And RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equipment to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, Hi. Ren Cavinti Uptown Community Church I'm in Washington Heights, in Inwood. So that means we're in the neighborhood in Manhattan that gets forgotten on all the tourist maps. You know that it stops at Harlem. Uh, we're above Harlem, so nobody. But my my neighborhood. Well, first thing, maybe you need to know about me is that um, when I was your age, I became a Christian at Redeemer uh, through Tim's career preaching, and that's part of my history. So the DNA with which I come today is that I was discipled here. And uh, it's a very different um, place than when when I was here, but um, certainly the Lord's been faithful. It's the same Jesus. (laughs) Um, But since then, he's taken me to Washington Heights and Inwood Which makes me a Japanese Filipino planting a church in a Dominican and Jewish neighborhood, which is slowly gentrifying. And so as you can imagine, the enterprise there, there are opportunities for exploring what the gospel has to say. Uh, and loving people across cultures and that's very very much what our enterprise is up there We we claim Lynn manuel Miranda who is from our neighborhood <laughs> born and raised and all the issues that come up in Hamilton and in Beautiful song uh, that's been making the rounds on YouTube for Puerto Rico um, It's out of our neighborhood man and in our neighborhood, you can get a cafe con leche for a dollar <laughs> and across the street you can get a $5 Starbucks coffee too And both of them are doing good business. And uh, we have the the first uh, elected Dominican in the United States. Our district is gerrymandered to make sure that that happens on the city council. But in recent years, it's been gerrymandered to include all from river to river. So on on west of Broadway in our neighborhood is primarily Dominican, east of Broadway is primarily uh, historically Jewish and, and gentrifying but even he's struggling with how does he govern in, how does he make the neighborhood economically viable for everybody? Every other neighborhood in Manhattan has become a market. Um, Not our neighborhood yet, but how do you govern with all the competing stories and narratives of our neighborhood? And so we view ourselves as a model house for how the resources that Christ gives us in the gospel um, can speak into those things. So that's, that's very much our church, and, and, and I have a lot to learn, too. Um, but part of the case that I'm going to make today is the mistakes that we make in the Christian community fuel the clarity of grace in our lives and the clarity of the basis of our unity. And that's really the case that all throughout the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that uh, the church and its life and all of the messiness of our cross-cultural relationships uh, is what produces our understanding of grace in real time in our actual experience. And it, it was, you know, all the race stuff, Charlottesville, <laughs> angry Facebook, uh, all the things that we're experiencing, you know, like you guys probably already know that the language of power and privilege, right, and dominant culture, right, because you're college students. So you're you learning all of that stuff. I'm not going to teach you all that stuff, but, but I want to say the, the mechanism and the secret weapon that we have is that the, the church has been given to us by Christ, that we've been saved not only over a line into heaven, but into a community that's supposed to deal with these things and reckon with them and get into conflicts. And out of that flowers clarity with respect to what our real unity is. And so I want to actually teach us that that's all over the scripture. That your generation, like my generation I think is lost. <laughs> But your generation I think has a radar for this. And to get to to help you, to, to, to with you begin to read scripture and look for all of these controversies and take the lessons out of them to apply in your community life for the rest of your life in the church, I think, uh, is a way that I can help. One more thing as by way of introduction actually, can I take my jacket off? It's a good sermon coming. Um, you know who John Perkins is? John Perkins is uh, a generation above me. Uh, They're Moses for uh, Christian community development, bona fide civil rights um, credentials. He's the founder of the CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. And so he's been developing basically the message and methods of Christianity, such as they are in the United States, for reaching to the pure, poor and and reckon for reconciliation across races. And he, this last weekend I was at a conference and he told me that he thinks that the hope for reconciliation uh, now is the church. He used to, he, all the methods used to be nonprofits, used to be seminars, used to be policy changes. And he makes the argument now that he's approaching 90, that he's for the next two years until he has no more energy <laughs> um, He's going to put all his eggs in church planting because it's the great incubator for figuring out how to deal with race issues. So that's the case, right? But the church is the great hope in what we do in the church. So let me do it in a couple ways. The first way is to read a very famous passage from 1 Corinthians 9. And I'm told you all have your Bibles on your phones, uh, so it's not in the bulletin. But let me let me read this classic statement of what it means Uh, to embrace multi-ethnic sort of agility in the church. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. If you're confused, that's okay. We're coming to the part where where you probably have heard and understand. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So this is this is his MO, that I'm gonna become all things to all people. I'm gonna be a kind of shapeshifter culturally so that I can help other people understand the gospel. And he uses this language of weak and strong. I saw in your small group, uh, one was called weak and strong. So you probably know a lot of that language already, but I wanna make sure that you know that when he uses weak and strong, it's not just spiritually weak and spiritually strong. But throughout Paul's letters, when he uses that language, he's actually using, those are cultural labels that he's using. The weak and the strong. So here's, here's the case study. And, uh, you guys all know Tim Keller, but his, his, this is a famous case study that he uses. And he compares um, the messiness of the church in 1 Corinthians to the church in Romans. And in one place, there are Jews and there are gentile christians they're living in the same community and they're forced to live in the same community because it's not like today where you know if you have a racial conflict or some kind of relationship thing you just go to another church they couldn't do that there was no second church of corinth you had to stay in the first church of corinth and work it out and so they all brought their own cultural baggage with them there is this controversy if you are uh you know in rome And you are a Gentile. You've been living, going to the temples and sacrificing food and stuff to Athena, to Apollo. And some of that food would come out and make it into the markets. And there was this controversy in the church of whether or not you could eat that food. And the Gentiles, because of their cultural background, their cultural baggage, they left those gods and the power of those gods, and they came under the lordship of Christ. And they said, don't eat that food that has been sacrificed to idols because that's evil food, that's the wrong God's food. The Jews in the Christian community were saying, there's nothing wrong with that food because there is only one God. Why? Because of their cultural background. There is only one God, there is no other God, those are fake gods, so what do we have to fear from food sacrificed to those non-gods? There's no." Power in them, but you, and then and, and Paul, when he talks to them, he says, You know, what makes you a Christian, what keeps your soul safe, is not food, it's grace. It's the grace of Jesus that he paid for your sins and that you are clean. So you don't worry about that. Uh, Jesus has made it so that no spiritual power can destroy you. You are invincible. That's what eternal life is that your soul is invincible, so this food is not going to do. But because of each group's cultural background, they're viewing this very sacred spiritual practice through the eyes of where they have come from. And he says, listen, the the people who say don't eat that food, the Gentiles, they are weak, because they don't understand they're saved by grace from faith and nothing else. You Jews, you understand, and so you are the strong. And he says, those who are strong must bear with the failings of the weak. And when he's saying that, he's not just saying, hey, those spiritually immature people. He's saying, you need to bear with those other cultural people who don't know better. They cannot see spiritual truth because of their cultural background. Does that make sense? Okay, that's one scenario. But then, Tim Keller and other commentators will compare that situation to 1 Corinthians where he uses the same language for the same two groups, but he switches them. The Jews in this situation are weak, and the Gentile Christians are strong. Why? It's, there's a controversy in the church. Again, it's over food. And what is the cultural baggage that the Jews have? Are you following with me? The Jews have these clean laws. You can't eat shellfish. You can't eat, you know, cloven hooves. Mm-hmm. All those Levitical laws. And, and some of the Gentiles, because of their Back, cultural background, they're saying, what is all this laws? We're not Jewish. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to adopt these cultural markers that are Jewish in order to be a part of the community. And, and Paul comes in and says, yes, you're saved by grace through faith. And these, law, these laws of food, they have been abrogated in Christ. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And so everything is clean. The strong must deal with, and bear with the failings of the weak. But in this case, it's switched that the Jews are the ones that are weak. And the Gentile Christians, because of their cultural background, are strong. Now, what do we learn from this? We learn, I mean, this, you realize this food stuff is super spiritual to all of these people. You know, how do we be holy in the church together? How do we be distinct from the communities that are not following Christ? these are sacred things but they are they're viewed differently because of different cultural backgrounds in one case my culture could be strong but in another situation my culture my cultural background will lead me to be weak with respect to spiritual things and therefore and therefore we need each other <laughs> and therefore it is a great advantage to learning your weakness in the gospel and clarifying whether or not you are saved by grace through faith alone, or whether or not you are sneaking in the back door some of your your cultural understandings that are applied to sacred things, and you're making those demands on other people, whether you're part of the dominant culture or whether you're part of the non-dominant culture. There's anger and resentment going <laughs> both ways. But, the overall, overall, the, the, you know, he uses this weak and strong language in Ephesians. He uses this weak and strong language uh, in other places because the overriding controversy that Paul is trying to deal with as he's trying to grow the church is how in the heck are these Jews and Greeks who are Christians going to get together? That's the whole story of Acts. It goes from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. How is the this, this story of this Jewish Messiah going to cross over without everybody punching each other in the face? And it forces him. I mean, the wonderful study that Tim Taylor has written about Galatians in which the, the main theme is you're saved by grace through faith and nothing else. What made... Paul write that and clarify what the gospel actually is. What made him do that was a controversy over circumcision and food loss, over cultural markers. And do you think that cannot be ap- applicable to, I mean, to the ways in which, I mean, this is an encouragement to get into multicultural relationships in the church until it hurts, until you fight, until you offend each other and are forced to forgive one another and understand and ask cultural questions when you didn't. you Maybe you're a peace lover and you don't want to do it. Maybe you're a fight lover and you do it a little bit too much. But unless you do it over and over and over and over as Paul did and learn to clarify the unity that you have in the gospel, you will never actually experience in real life experience what he says here, which is, for the weak's sake, I... Deal with the failings of the weak. And I become all things to all people. Yeah, it's harder than, than we think. Because we know so much about power and privilege and what we want for the world, we also think that we've done it. But we haven't until we've experienced the conflict and messiness of the church. And I want to encourage you to get into it. It's all over. We have a Colombian... Elder in our church, and you know, I get up and I try to preach this stuff, and with broad strokes, I say, Latinos are like this, Haitians <laughs> are like this, and whites in our church tend to act like this, and we need, and, and you know, it's all an illustration, completely stereotypical, but I'm trying to make a point. And he comes down after uh, and he says, you're totally wrong about Latinos. From the pulpit, you are wrong about Latinos. And I feel horrible because I'm the teaching pastor. I'm supposed to teach people how to get along. I'm supposed to have deep understanding of Latinos, even though I'm not Latino in the church. How can my church begin to deal with these things? Um, so I have to go and I have to have a hard conversation with him. His preaching in our congregation is... Uh, we, some describe it as uh, a machine gun and maybe one of the bullets hits you. Maybe 30 points in a sermon. (laughs) I'm a sniper. I try to get one point and hopefully that will hit you but our congregation is learning how to live with both sermons and I know that's hard. You know, when I was in seminary, I went to to school here down uh, at ATS and Art. ATS is uh, um, Alliance Theological Seminary focused on Uh, raising pastors for the city for New York City and so it was very diverse they taught it as if it was diverse Uh, but you know I was used to going into a classroom and when you take systematic theology the professor's gonna lecture and I'm gonna take notes but in the middle of the lecture some of the black pastors from black churches they would get up in the middle of the lecture they would pull out their Bible and they would say, "Wait a second! Wait a second! What about this in Leviticus three? And what about this? And uh, you know, Revelation?" And there was no question coming for the professor. They were correcting the professor, and I look around the room, and all of the Asian Americans, their stress levels are going high because <laughs> he's stopping. I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be writing down. I'm supposed to be absorbing. And the whites are looking at their watches, saying, "How much am I paying?" per minute how much am i losing he's wasting <laughs> my time this is not a seminar class this is this is a lecture class and, and some of the african-american um, uh, pastors are cheering him on saying yeah go and that's these are all cultural markers of learning styles my friend duke kwan who's uh, down in the dc area is korean and he uh, he, his great illustration is, I'm Korean, and if you're going to let me into your life, then you're going to have to deal with the fact that when we eat together, there's going to be kimchi on the table. <laughs> it's not just saying, yeah, I've got this friend Duke Kwan. But it's 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 sharing a meal together and perhaps being offended <laughs> by something like a smell. And there are far more things to be offended by of course, but learning how to navigate those things, even when you don't have the answer. One of the questions in our neighborhood is this idea of gentrification. What do we do with it? And there's competing narratives in our neighborhood. One of the narratives is change, that before this neighborhood, our neighborhood was Dominican, before that it was Puerto Rican, before that it was Jewish, before that it was Irish, before that it was Greek, before that it was, uh, you know, rich Dutch, before that it was farming Dutch, and before that was Lanape Indian, and so the narrative of our neighborhood is what? It's changed, that's just how the city is, and so as people move in, you just have to deal with it. The story of the neighborhood is not that it's Dominican, it's change. But then there's another narrative from my friend Kevin Vasquez, He's he's a church planter in the neighborhood. He said, listen, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and when the U.S. came, and made it a territory and did what we consider occupying, they took my family's farm. They just took it because they could. But they gave us citizenship, and they said we could come to the United States and that, that we can make a new life here, and now we've made a life here. We've become self-sufficient uh, sort of sufficient here, and now people are coming in and raising rents, and essentially they're taking our neighborhood because they can. Now, which narrative governs our neighborhood. Which one, how do you live with both of those kinds of people in the church? It's very, very hard. We have very hardcore Republicans. We have very hardcore Democrats in our church. We have people who are upset about the president's treatment of DACA. We have people who are cheering on <laughs> the president's actions toward DACA and it's kind of frustrating and it forces you To figure out how you're unified, because Jesus Christ died on the cross not only to get us over a line into heaven, but to bring us into a community in which He has made one man out of the Jew and the Greek. He has united them. That is actually part of our salvation. And to figure out how that works is hard work. And so, what you know, what is he talking about? What what kind of Christians is he trying to produce with this statement? And here are a few. Categories that I'd like to give you that we work with in our church. We're trying to get to this place where what we what we call cultural agility is being produced by the gospel in our community. But there are two other broad strokes, um, broad kinds of people that they come into our church as. Uh, the first is is kind of we call culturally inflexible people that they don't actually. Um, Consider that they are a culture and other people are other cultures, and they sort of just keep on going the way that with the cultural assumptions, and they begin to apply those things to sacred ways in the church, just the way that the Jews and the Gentiles were doing. And so, um, you know, I, this is like Malcolm X. This is like Spike Lee, who's black, and he, he's not going to be anything else but black. And you could be hard, you could be hard. It, culturally inflexible and you can be soft. You could be culturally inflexible because you don't have the skill to sort of hang out with other cultures, or you could be culturally inflexible because you don't know any better. And in the Bible, the example would be the Pharisees, right? Culturally inflexible. What's well, more helpful if they contrast that with the, with the other extreme, which is what we call cultural assimilationist, uh, which is that you are one culture, but in order to get along you assume the cultural markers of another culture. And you can be hard and soft in this. You can be intentionally like this, or you could, you could do this just by habit. And the example uh, that uh, my friend Brian Lortz does, uh, says is, is, this is Urkel. You, I don't even know. You guys, OK, nodding heads, thank you very much. The old guy trying to be relevant. But Urkel, you know, he, he, uh, or, or um, Alfonso Ribeiro in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, what was his name? Or, he, Carlton. Carlton, yes. Sorry. So he adopts, he adopts the cultural markers of someone who lives in Bel-Air. And, of course, he's compared to Will Smith, who might be considered culturally inflexible. And the mayhem that they get into is exactly what we're supposed to be doing <laughs> in the church. and in the, in the Bible, the example... Is probably the Sadducees, right? They are culturally Jewish, but they basically support uh, Roman occupation. They basically support the emperor. They basically think you can take or leave the cultural markers of the laws of, of the Jews, right? And then we're trying to do culturally agile, not culturally inflexible, not culturally assimilationist, but culturally agile, all things to all people. And the example... The Brian Lortz gave was Denzel Washington because Denzel can play anybody. He gets roles in Training Day and he gets roles that are not Training Day, and he can—he's—he's he's culturally flexible. He can take on the different cultural markers in order to play a part. And, um, the example here is Paul, but the real example that we have is actually Jesus himself. That Jesus, in the, in, in the wonder of the incarnation at Christmas, you know what's happening at Christmas? That Jesus legitimately has the best culture in the world. He has the best neighborhood He's the most righteous, he's the most cool, we don't see him that way, but he's legitimately culturally superior than anyone because he's from heaven. He's the second person of the Trinity. But in the incarnation, he comes down into the world, and he doesn't unbecome himself. See, that's the thing, he's not assimilating. He never gets rid of his deity. But in Christmas, he comes down and he adds a second culture to himself in order to love that other culture. We need to see the sacrifice that that is, even before he gets into the cross. Right, what is it? The, the, the three, uh, Jesus went underwent three humiliations. One was the incarnation. The second was the cross. The third was the church. And for that church, he incarnated. When people come to our church because they smell that in order to be sort of culturally flexible, we privilege non-dominant culture stories. Right, they'll smell that because if you have an organization in which you, just, you don't bring that, the, the, the non-dominant culture right into the center of what you're doing, the dominant culture is just going to roll right over it. That's, we just know that's going to happen. And so we privilege And people smell that. And you know, we, some of the, our, our white parishioners will come in and say, is it okay for us to be white in this church? Because, they, because of the way we operate. And I say to them, yes, of course, we need you to be as white as you can possibly be. Because unless you are, we don't learn anything. Unless you, don't, unless you come in and come close to us and make mistakes in your whiteness, cross-culturally, and let us make mistakes, coming back the other way, we're not going to learn anything. We're not going to grow in the skills, and we are not, our model is Christ himself. He did not unbecome himself, but he added a second culture to himself in order to love the people who are different than him. That's amazing. Thank, Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. I mean, how does an elephant communicate his love to a rock? The orders of being, how do you do it? The, the rock doesn't even speak a language, doesn't even trumpet the elephant. And this is a weird illustration, I know, but the elephant has to become a rock. <laughs> At least add rockness to in order to communicate that love. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what Paul did all over the place. That's what he made Timothy do. In one situation, said, Timothy, you don't have to get circumcised In another situation, in order to love the community, he said, Timothy, you have to get circumcised. Think about that cultural marker for a second. Your pastor comes to you and says, in order for you to preach the gospel and to win, to become all things to all people that you might win some, you got to cut it off. Timothy, are you going to do it? Controversy inside, conflict, Do I really have to become that? Do I really have to add that culture to myself? And the answer is yes. Now, it's so situational that I'm not going to give you a million how-tos because the assignment is over the span of your... You're not going to even be good at it in the next two weeks. But the assignment is that over the span of your life, in your church relationships, you get into that incubator and you learn those skills... You learn to whittle down your unity with other Christians through your identity in Christ, and then you move out into the world with that identity. Does that make sense? Okay. Before I go, yeah. Okay, I'll do it. Four things. Let me give you four categories that come with the new identity that Christ is one with us that that come with our salvation that I think are particularly uh, applicable. And we use these in our, con- our congregation, So this is the time to take notes if you're taking notes. Uh, four, t- four P's, proximity, power, patience, and per- persistence. Okay, proximity, that you need to be close to other people who are different than you. And if you, if you do that without getting into conflict sometimes, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you have to be close to them. This takes hospitality and it will take forgiveness take hospitality and forgiveness. There's a pastor friend of mine, he's Presbyterian pastor in our understanding of things that we we don't speak out politically until it's absolutely necessary. We major on the majors, but we don't speak about political things. Is that, I mean, it's, it's to the last, it's our last resort. And the question he had was, what would make me speak out in some of the injustices in a political, way, and I thought to myself, well, if the people in your church are dealing with these racial injustices, you're going to speak out to it, because you have proximity. You are close to them. Whenever I go on panels about racial unity, they say, what do we do? What's the next action step? What policy should we do? What rally should we go to? The thing that I always say, and everybody almost initially says, that's so weak, but I really think this is what you do. Well, the next thing to do is you get, in, get into a friendship with someone that you're gonna disagree with. And you ask them questions, and you offend each other, you forgive each other, and then you take the Lord's Supper together. Because the next time you go out into the world after that and try to make public policy, the next time you go out, that to, go out to vote The next time you make a policy at your job, you're gonna think about your friend whom you love and how they feel. And so proximity is everything. You don't need to change absolutely everything. That's what they're forcing you to do that in the first church church of Corinth, of which there was no second church of Corinth. So proximity, and it takes hospitality and forgiveness. Second, power or privilege. You guys know this, you have to think about this. And this takes humility And it takes a change of identity, both things that Jesus gives you in salvation and makes you more and more like him. The more we find our peace and identity in him, more than our cultural background, and that means knowing that you are not good at this. I am not good at this. We are not good, as a human race, at treating people who are different than us with love. And the gospel tells us that. And if our identity is in Christ, we admit it and we repent. And we give up power. We start to examine our hearts and our behaviors for ways in which we are using power intentionally or unintentionally in ways that are affecting the people that we should be loving. We know that we are sinners. Uh, After I gave a talk on race, one of the best questions that came up was a woman who was saying, yeah, I'm part of all these groups on campus and we're, we're trying to do rallies and stuff like that. Um, but all my friends are saying, how come you're not angry? How come you're not as angry as we are about the injustice? How come you won't forward the things that I put on Facebook? <laughs> um, and I said, well, you know, that's probably right. Because if you have a moral compass for justice, it's very easy to say, listen, unless I get this justice, unless I write absolutely everything here and I force other people to do the right thing, I'm, I'm righteously angry. I have the right to push down this other person. And the thing is, you don't, nobody's ever that righteous. You need to be slow to anger like the Lord is. And one of the ways in which the, that Christians should be unique, is that we're so far uh, engaged in seeking justice, more than other people, but we don't have the poison of being angry, that we're calm, that we leave nothing to their imaginations about what our stance is through our actions and our behaviors. But the anger is not there, because everybody's made in the image of God. Jesus teaches, love your enemies, and that's what he did with us. And so we, we deal with our own privilege. We deal with the ways in which we fight privilege and the ways in which we use power differently. That's a whole other sermon, but I'll go on to the third one, patience. Proximity takes hospitality and forgiveness. Power takes humility and a new identity in Christ. Patience takes the... The, the, the character that the Bible talks about being circumspect with hope and an identity in Christ because it's going to be difficult. This deals with the complicated nature of, the, of race relations. Do you guys know what a, a critical race theory is? A critical race theory is a way of looking in the world um, through the eyes of the way power is moved by the legal system. And one of the things uh, that they... Um, that, that, that they teach is intersectionalism, that, that there's an intersection of different power, that everybody's a Venn diagram, and you have different identities, and different assignments of power are to different, um, different uh, identities. So if you are uh, a black woman, but educated from a single-family home, in some cases, you're part of privilege, right? In some cases, you're not. One of the best questions that I get after these things is when, I'm thinking of a, a black student at Columbia who came up and said, yeah, when I go home, because I go to Columbia, I'm seen as someone who's, who's betrayed and, and sort of left the ghetto, that I'm privileged, but when I come onto the campus of Columbia because I'm a black woman, I'm seen as someone who is, is a minority. Which one am I? How should I act? And she was extremely conflicted about how to deal with with the issues. And so what does that take? It takes patience. (laughs) It takes a, a, a not panicking of being circumspect. This is another reason we're not so angry just because someone does something because things are complicated. Let me go quickly, last one, persistent. You have to develop grit, faith, Because one of the things that Jesus died for was to make us one in Him. That is a gift of salvation that is given to us by free grace, the unity of the Spirit. And it's our job to work that out, just like we work out every other gift that has come to us in salvation hope, faith, love, community. We're working those things out. Why aren't we working out the unity of faith? Because He has promised it to us. He broke His body. To give it to us, and one day we will all be standing around the throne, worshiping, identifiable, identifiable in our cultures, but all around the throne, enjoying him together. And that that is worth waiting for. We we can put the sword down because he has taken his up. We can we can forego some justice because he has taken it up and he is and he will deliver justice in all of these areas one day fully when he comes back. And so we can be persistent even when there are breaches in the justice that we are seeking, even when our hearts are broken by Charlottesville. Yeah, I, I don't know, That that is a, that is a grace. <laughs> You know, one of our parishioners, his name is uh, Dorian Heron. He was, you know, Eric Garner? Eric Garner's son was in his English class. And he said in their class, they basically didn't talk about anything except Eric Garner's uh, son's trauma the whole year. <laughs> and he said, What? what am I supposed to tell them? What am I supposed to tell them about power? What am I supposed to tell them about privilege? What am I supposed to tell them? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) But he took the gospel that he had. He took the promise of Jesus that he had. He took the hope that he had, and he injected it the best that he could into the class. And at the end of the year, he said, said, you know what? The best gift that I could give them was that I, I was a black man in the city being persistent, not giving up. And I don't know that I could have done that if I didn't have the hope of Jesus in my heart. I couldn't have done that if I identified primarily as a black man. I couldn't have done that even if I identified primarily as a teacher who was responsible for the education of these kids. I could only have done that if Jesus was promising to me that one day we'll be unified around the throne Amen. That's, that's grace to us. Can I pray for you? Yeah. Father, thank you for the evidence all over the scripture that you're not silent on the issue of race and culture. Things that vex us and discourage us in our society, you came to make right. Give us the eyes to see that this is part of the grace that you've won for us on the cross, at great cost to yourself. Help us to cherish it and strive for it By grace, through faith. Amen.